0: Hi there, and welcome to my podcast show, Technologies Impacting Society. And in this episode, I got to speak with Professor Rob Kitchen about slow computing. Rob has just finished writing a book with Alistair Fraser called Slow Computing. You'll find it at slowcomputingbook.com and it's all about taking control of our digital lives. Digital technologies should be making our lives easier, and to a large degree they do, transforming our everyday tasks, but also they're somehow affecting our well-being and our concentration spans. And in this book, Rob is drawn on the ideas of slow movement and slow computing sets out numerous practical and political means to take back control and counter the more pernicious effects of living digital lives. Rob is also the author of four crime novels and two collections of short stories. He's also professor and ERC advanced investigator at the National Institute of Regional and Spatial Analysis at Maynooth University, for which he was the director between 2002 and 2013. He's currently a principal investigator at the Programmable City Project, funded by the European Research Council, and the Building City Dashboards Project, funded by Science Foundation Ireland. He was formerly a PI for the Digital Repository of Ireland from 2009 to 2017 and the All-Ireland Research Observatory from 2005 to 2017.
1: I'm uh, Rob Kitchen. I'm a professor in the Maynooth University Social Sciences Institute, and my specialty is human geography as a discipline, but most of my work is really on the relationship between technology and society.
0: I suppose with the data revolution we're having now, where is your keen interest, Rob? Which is the main sort of area of technology? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: So most of my work's been on, I guess, smart city technology, but I've been writing about technology, society and space really in the intersection of those three things well over 20, 25 years. I think, I think my first article on the internet was back in 1995, I think. So I've been interested in this relationship about how particularly internet technologies have kind of changed our relationship with space and more recently with time and kind of reconfigures all different kinds of spaces, whether that's the home or whether it's work or whether it's kind of neighborhoods or whether it's larger regional economies and so on. So I'm kind of interested in that relationship. So I started on the internet, and then I moved on to thinking about software and how software in creates space. How, so how does software produce space? And a good example that's something like an airport. Like the the airport simply doesn't function without software. Everywhere from buying the ticket to checking in to going through security, going through immigration, it uh, goes through passport control. All of those kinds of things are mediated by software. And the plane itself is basically you know a box with wings. That's the, that's a whole set of computers. Basically, a whole set of computers with wings. And so I, I started to think, well, so rather than just kind of world inside the computer, I was much more interested in how software was and, and how software was being embedded into everyday objects. So all kinds of different things started to move from being dumb to being smart. And then more recently in, I guess, from around 2012 onwards, more interested in data so all of this software has to work on data and all of these smart objects produce lots of data. So then how does that, I guess, how does that combination of kind of algorithms and data kind of manifest itself in lots of different ways and how does it shape our everyday lives in different ways? And, and then how it feeds into kind of decision making, choice making, nudging, altering our behavior and uh, and so on. So that was a kind of move towards Uh, looking at this notion of of, uh, the data revolution, I guess.
0: But you've written a very interesting book called Slow Computing. Can you talk a little bit about that, Rob?
1: Yeah, so a lot of my work has been on, you know, what are the consequences for these technologies? What do they do? How do they do it? And the Slow Computing book was more of an attempt to say, what do we do about it? And as individuals, how can we maybe take back some of our sovereignty? So in relation to time, and in relation to data, how can we get some more control over how these technologies impact on us. So it's really about kind of setting out the ways in which these technologies impact on us and then both individually and collectively, what can we do to try and uh, make sure the technology works for us rather than against us. And allows us to kind of have the joy of computing. So I mean computing is very useful and you know, lots of people get lots of benefit out of it, whether it's from entertainment or whether it's work or whether it's keeping in contact with family or whatever it is. But how do we do that so it's not done in a kind of pernicious way where we become the product and we're being manipulated by companies or states and that we have some kind of sovereignty? and some kind of power inside of that set of relationships.
0: Your book is on slow computing. From what I read, it's basically about taking control, as you're talking about there, that you know we hold on to our own data, but we're trying to take control of our own digital lives.
1: Yeah, so it's not necessarily, so it is partly about trying to control our data, but it is about us maybe being a bit more reflexive and a bit more careful and maybe taking a bit more time to understand how we might be caught up in things like surveillance capitalism and the way in which companies try to extract value from us and manipulate us into certain uh, things, whether that's into purchases or and so on, and also in relation to our time. So there was always this notion that computing would free up lots of leisure time and would free up our kind of ability to be in control of what we're doing but actually in a lot of ways it's just fragmented our time and put more pressure onto us so we're constantly having to deal with lots and lots of different tasks so I'm being bombarded all day at the minute with emails and text messages and uh, all these kind of stuff coming in and I'm expected to respond in relative real time so there's always pressure to be in contact to respond to uh, interact with people to interact with systems uh, and so on and also, because things are not so managed and things are at serendipity, so it used to be if I wanted to go and meet somebody, I'd say, I'll meet you under Cleary's clock at three o'clock. And we both had to be there, whereas now I have a phone and we can kind of negotiate as we go along. And, and at one level, that's great, but another level that kind of fragments the time and lets you interleave more things and actually makes things more pressured, because now you you can try and balance more things. So rather than just go to Cleary's clock, you might also to deal deal with kids, deal with bills, answering emails while you're at the bus stop. You're doing lots of other things rather than just to kind of leisurely go there as a one single activity.
0: What made you write the book, Slow Computing, Rob?
1: Well, it's partly to do, I guess, with my kind of background around kind of policy. So I've been in a kind of a policy kind of institute for a long time. So a lot of the work that we do is about trying to understand what's going on and then try to give advice so a lot of our work has been around kind of things like spatial planning and population and so on. So we, would, uh, we wouldn't we would just analyze what was going on. We would also then have to try and say to the policymakers or to politicians or to community groups, this is what we think should happen. I've not really done that in relation to this technology stuff. So a lot of my work has been critique without necessarily saying, well, this is what should happen instead although some of my work has been doing that but in a very normative way so in a very kind of theoretical conceptual way as opposed to a very practical grounded way and so I wanted to be able to I'm I'm with my co-author Alastair Fraser we want to be able to actually talk directly to people like give advice at a kind of a ground level of kind of saying you know look this is the kinds of relations you're embedded in and these you know and sometimes with this technology it almost seems quite teleological it's kind of fate it's kind of uh, inevit- there's inevitability about it. It's just this kind of forward movement, and we're caught in it. And actually saying, well, no, like we can actually push back. We can actually do little things to gain back uh, some control. And if we collectively organise, then we can kind of try and get a different type of relation. You know, so if we organize through unions or we organise through civil society or we organise through local communities, we can actually say, look, we don't we don't want this kind of level of data extraction or we don't want this pressure to be working in the evenings and at weekends and so on. And we can move towards new regulation or new kind of work practices and so on. This is
0: we, we I think right now we're not being given a choice. We don't have any choice. We have to go along with it. And as you said, it's like 24-7.
1: To a certain degree. I mean, yes, we kind of say that in the book that like slow computing is hard. It's not easy, right? Because there's lots of pressure. There's, you know, you, your family expects you to be on the phone 24-7, right? They expect you to respond. They expect you to be able to deal with the time fragmentation and time pressures and so on. Your employer often expects you to be available 24-7, particularly if you're in jobs with zero-hour contracts and so on, and they expect you to be able to come in at a drop of a hat to work and so on. So you don't necessarily have a lot of power in this relations. Uh, some of this technology is deliberately addictive. I mean, these companies employ behavioralists and neuropsychologists and so on. I mean, they deliberately building. There's a thing called the hook cycle, which is all about the ways in which you make the technology Addictive, so that you're compelled to keep going back to social media because you want the buzz of a new comment or a new like or a new. You want to know what's happening, so you you constantly keep going back, and that's the kind of a cycle that's quite uh, difficult to break. You know, so there are pressures to kind of keep us into this kind of set of relations. At the same time, you can kind of push back against them and say, actually, I'm only going to look at my email three times a day. I'm not going to look at it every five minutes. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to block off time for this. I'm not going to answer my phone in the evening or I'm going to take a break over the weekend or I'm going to use privacy enhancement technology within my browser or I'm going to, you know, use it on my phone. Uh, So I might use a VPN. I might install various plugins like Privacy Badger or HTTPS everywhere and so on. So I can find ways in which I can try to limit data extraction and so on. And if we work collectively, then we can push it back against it in a sense. So the, so a thing like, um, in France, for example, and in Italy, they now, na- they now have a law called the right to disconnect. And the right to disconnect means you're under no obligation to answer email after five o'clock or at the weekends or to answer the phone to your boss, you know, that you, you actually have the right to say, no, I'm not doing that. And interestingly, some German companies have actually worked out that it's actually more productive not to hassle their staff in the evenings and at the weekends and they get a lot more productivity and innovation and creativity out of their staff if they're well rested, that they like going to work, that they enjoy working for the company and that they don't feel a lot of pressure or resentment and so on. So uh, certain German companies like Mercedes or Bayer and so on won't send emails after five o'clock. They actually just store them up and they'll go out in the morning. They won't ring at the weekend. If you go on holiday for two weeks, then you won't get any emails during that two weeks and so on. So they're very practical interventions where the company has kind of worked out that it's in their interest uh, not to have stressed uh, pressured uh, employees people come back rested they come back motivated they come back more creative and they're more productive and it's actually better for the company to have staff who are uh, like working for the company and feel engaged than staff who are kind of pressured and resentful and stressed and so on. So, computing can actually mean, you know, kind of doing more with less in a way. It's a kind of a more sensible strategy to kind of practice what's called structured rest. The structured rest is this uh, kind of notion that you should actually have downtime, that you should be looking after your health and well-being, that you actually will be a more kind of productive, creative, motivated worker if you do actually have a work-life balance. And it's about trying to put that into your daily life, you know, and uh, making sure you get some exercise, making sure that you have some downtime. So it's not like a complete digital detox It's not saying you should give up computing, you should give up all this stuff. It's basically saying you just need to have it in some kind of form of balance where you're managing that kind of relationship and that you're not completely uh, snowed under or feeling that you're under pressure the entire time and that you can kind of separate yourself off from the computer or from your phone. You know, like the smartphone is kind of interesting as this device because it's basically a computer you have in your pocket that also is a phone. And it allows this great degree of connectivity. And, you know, people get kind of, you know, people will spend hours on their phone every day. You know, I think uh, there's uh, a number of studies that show that people look at their phone over 50 times a day. You know, 60 odd percent of people have looked at their phone within 15 minutes of waking up and started to answer email and started to answer social media. It's the first thing they do is before they have even had breakfast or a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, they've actually started to interact on their phone. So it's maybe saying, look, I'm not going to look at my phone for the first hour when I get up. I'm going to kind of have a more relaxed entry into the day as opposed to immediately being under pressure and you look at your phone and go, oh my God, I've missed that report or, or, or I've missed this call. Or, I've missed my... And, and so you actually wake up immediately stressed. You know, it's just about kind of... it's So a lot of it can be very small yeah. interventions and yeah. things like the right to disconnect are things like larger collective interventions that may maybe negotiated through trade unions or civil liberties groups, a kind of social activist groups and so on, that try to pressure for more kind of uh, societal regulation or societal pushback, maybe new work practices and so on. So it's a kind of a combination in that sense.
0: You have a chapter called Accelerating Life. I haven't read the book, but I'm wondering if this is what you're referencing to, you know, we're so busy. It's almost double the time now going because we have to attend to this device and to the real world. It's kind of spoiling living in the first world as such.
1: Yeah. So this notion, you know, as I said before, there's this notion that we, you know, this technology would free us up, you know, and that it would automate things and it would actually give us more time. Whereas in actual fact, our lives have speeded up. They become more busy. They become more uh, kind of interleaved. So by interleaved, I mean, we do multiple activities simultaneously. So I can be eating my dinner, watching the television and interacting on social media and talking to the kids at the same time. I'm not doing one thing in time and I can be doing things at multiple scales. Uh, so by that, I mean, I can be sat in my living room engaging with a TV that might be talking about a national debate while texting somebody on the other side of the world. So I'm kind of extended in these long networks of relations spread across the globe through the connection of the computer. So although the technology in a way is meant to make things easier and more managed, actually I'm just busier. right? I'm dealing with trying to manage relationships with lots of different people in lots of different places, lots of different devices. Lots of different tasks are all kind of, over the top of each other and so part of what we're saying is, is we need to kind of step back from that or work back from that and work out how so this is the notion of slow which comes off the notion of the slow movement and the slow movement has been so it was originally in relation to slow foods you know this idea rather than fast food and you know in and out have food onto the next thing that we, you know, we actually take time enjoy the food enjoy the family enjoy the conversation in you know, the interaction with our friends and so on And that slow movement has moved into a whole series of other things things like slow tourism things like the slow university for example you know we live in this neoliberal university of hyper productivity you know that we have to find a way of kind of getting some work-life balance back and slowing things down and maybe being more thoughtful and more reflexive and more careful in analysis rather than fast and so on so it's that kind of balance i think between kind of the pressures being put on us uh, through these multiple kinds of relations and our well-being and our health and our kind of mental sanity on the other side and how but we've, we've been very careful to try and say look we're not saying give up computing because we get lots and lots of benefits from computing right we get pleasure we get the joy of interaction with people on the other side of the world we get community we get all sorts of stuff you know and we get loads of choice on the TV we get loads of you know we various different gizmos and stuff you know But it's about getting that balance, that we don't get completely sucked into that world, that we're kind of degrading our other kinds of relations and not really doing ourselves any favours in relation to our health and wellbeing.
0: Do you think that it's actually taking from humanity? I mean, this fractured attention span, for example, I've seen it, I mean, it damages your learning. I much prefer, for example, it's kind of doing a period of deep work, you know, you have no distractions for like two hours or three hours blocks of work like this but i've seen what it does to my own attention span and i often wonder how this affects my nervous system and are there any studies have there been any studies done on what it actually does to your nerves because as you know i don't have the scientific terms as far as i can see it can often fry your nerves for want of a better word
1: yeah i mean i'm not uh, that's not my kind of area of um Mm. Anybody, but there's a whole, I mean, there is a big literature around kind of health and well-being and around the use of digital tech and so on. Now, some of that can be on the side towards, you know, violence games and so on. And some of it can be around stress and addiction and, and so on. So I don't know whether it fries your nerves. I mean, certainly things like social media makes me anxious. So I have this kind of strange relationship with social media where I can't, kind of, you know, I have this timeline full of bad news and people giving out about this, that and the other. And I kind of get anxious about things. At the same time, I'm compelled to keep reading it. And if I don't read it for a day, I'm wondering what the hell's going on in the world. And you know, so I kind of in this kind of relation. So what I've been trying to do, actually writing the book, made me think about my own relationship to this kind of tech. You know, so I try to kind of just go on at particular times, as opposed to having it on the entire time in the background. Which, of course, I've gone back to doing now. So like, it's go. You know, like. Uh, and I think the other kind of thing to you was kind of saying about learning, and, and so we talked a little bit about this, is just recognizing that there's a kind of neurodiversity around learning and that we actually learn in different ways. So for some people, they can actually be quite productive flipping between different things and they don't, they don't mind that other people are really productive if they're deep in something and they don't have any distractions and they're like hundred percent concentrated on something. So people have different learning styles. They have different ways of engaging with material. They have different ways of working through it. So there's not a one size fits all on that front, I think. And it's more about finding the way that works best for you. uh, Also identifying the ways that work negatively and then trying to work out how to get rid of those. So we kind of have this thing around structured time, really, around working out how to manage time. And we also do it on the relation to data. So kind of like understanding how we give away data, the way data is extracted from us and so on and working out how we want to manage that and to actively manage that rather than just saying it's just a condition of the system and we have to accept it or we don't. Well, that's not true. We can actually intervene and we can do certain things. Ultimately, though, you're going to have to give something what away. What
0: are the things that we can do collectively, Rob?
1: Collectively, it is about things uh like... So there's a number of civil society organisations, particularly around data. So things like the American Civil Liberties Union, the Electric Frontier Foundation... Privacy International, you know, there's a whole bunch of these kind of actors that are looking at things around digital technology and civil liberties and uh, kind of rights and entitlements and so on, and are actively campaigning on getting regulation uh, getting law, building privacy enhancement technologies and so on. So they are trying to collectively shape the landscape. And things like GDPR is a good example of something that's come out of that kind of movement of different Different kinds of relatively large civil society actors working together, trying to pressure politicians and parliaments to uh, shape the kind of legal regulatory landscape. On the time front, the same kind of thing has happened around the right to disconnect. We should rather maybe more coming out of civil society organisations, have come out of unions and uh, you know labour organisations uh, and so on. And things like the gig economy has kind of shifted quite a bit of kind of organisation. Uh, activist labor organization around things like time management because the geek economy is partly around um, you know altering the temporal relations of work and so on so there has been a bit of organizing on that front and a bit of pushing back
0: how can we find out what you know is there the area of uh, obviously digital ethics that's still new and digital care these are new emerging sectors you know there's i think a lot of this is about education because i think a lot of people don't know they don't care and they give away an awful lot of their rights when they give away their data and i don't think they understand i'm not, I'm not saying that in sort of uh, being a know-it-all but i don't think they fully understand the consequences of giving away their data and the rights being gradually eroded
1: yes that's right so particularly around the data too because the the has been this massive growth of data brokers and of data markets and, you know, all of these different technologies are extracting data about us, all the different kinds of services that we interact with are extracting data about us. And those data circulate and they're shared and they're monetized and value extracted uh, from them and they have consequences for us. So the data might well shape, you know, whether you get the tenancy or whether you get the loan or the mortgage or whether you get the job or even who you date, Right, If you're using one of these dating websites or who you interact with on social media, so whose messages pop up in your timelines and whose are hidden and what adverts you see, how you might be nudged. So how recommender systems work to influence maybe what TV you watch, what books you buy or read, what music you listen to and so on. So this data has consequences, even if you don't necessarily realize it. Now, some people will say, well, that's great because I get to watch the TV I like and I get to listen to the music I like and I get to date people I like. But there's a balance between the degree to which you have real agency in those decisions and the degree to which you're being manipulated. And at the minute, you might not necessarily know where that balance lies. And you might not necessarily know how much data is actually being pulled away from you. So whenever I run my classes Whenever I give public talks, I kind of show people the data that's collected about them. They're often quite shocked.
0: Shocked. I bet. Yeah.
1: But then they say, what can we do about it? And then they kind of say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. If I want to use Facebook, I just have to accept that they're going to take all this data. And if I use Google, I just have to accept they're going to take all this data and so on. But that's not necessarily true. I mean, I mean, you know, the simplest way to stop Facebook getting data about you is not use Facebook. But That's difficult if all of your family and friends are on there and that's where the platform they want to communicate through because it's very difficult to say to everybody you know, well, okay, we're all leaving Facebook and we're going somewhere else. So it's difficult to get an entire network to move. So that's why they kind of exist in kind of monopoly positions. It's not just as simple as saying we're going to leave Facebook. So that's why Facebook needs to be regulated around some of its data practices and its privacy practices uh, and so on. But there's still things that you can do, like using Facebook container, for example. So it basically puts Facebook in a container on your browser so that it can't track you while you're across other websites. You know, it doesn't track you across the like button or across the other kinds of things. It kind of helps block them building up a bit of a profile around you. It might be, you know, so it's being careful about what you actually post on Facebook, I don't mention anything about my family on Facebook. I share work things and I share things about the media and I share, I do share things about what's going on, you know, so I might say, oh, we've just built a new chicken coop or something, but that's, I don't, I don't mind saying that. So my rule is I don't put anything on social media that I wouldn't say in the pub or in the hairdressers or in a public environment that I don't mind people to hear, but anything that I only close people to hear, then I don't put that up. And it's the same kind of thing with a photo. You don't, don't put up a photo that you don't mind being shared with everybody on the planet. Because once it's online, it's online. People can screen grab it. They can share it. They can do all the kinds of things with it. So it, it's just maybe being, I think self-reflexivity is a big part of this. And I think you're right. Education is a big part of that. You know, this stuff should be taught in schools that people know you know, what kinds of data is collected about them, what kind of happens with it? Because the school, what happens on the school stuff doesn't just disappear, right? So it's there in the background, you know? So if you put up stupid uh, nude photos of yourself, they don't just disappear. You know, when you were drunk and 16 or something, you know, like you have to be a little bit kind of savvy about how some of this tech works. and. Thank God it wasn't around when I was 16.
0: Likewise, I think it's very difficult because the teachers themselves don't even understand how it works. There's just not enough resources to go around in a society that's based on on science and technology.
1: Yeah, and it's the same when, I I mean, I did a report for the data forum and the the T-shirts office a couple of years around smart city technology. And that was one of the things I recommended was we need proper education and training about things like, you know, what data is collected, what happens with it, how is it used? And then also things like cybersecurity and uh, proper kind of protections in around this that so the people inside organizations need to know this, So the people running this technology needs to learn this. And the people that the technology is focusing on or managing or you know, delivering a service to need to know that as well. And we've not been that great at doing that. And data brokers are, are an interesting market sector and they're almost black boxes. Nobody really knows what's going inside of them. They're they're kind of very secretive organizations and we don't have good insight as to what kinds of data they've got, how they're integrating, linking that data together, how they're extracting it, how they're monetizing it. We have some idea about how they're monetizing it because they have to be able to sell the services to other people. So we do have some notions, but there's lots that we don't know and most people in society have no idea what data brokers are doing. They don't know what data those data brokers hold about them in Europe we, we have things like GDPR that tries to regulate that kind of stuff but we still don't the, there's lots of stuff that's probably uh, going on there in places like the US and so on I think it's a lot more fragmented on the kind of privacy legislation front and practices and what you can do with the data is much more open than within Europe
0: What are your own personal strategies of slow computing Rob?
1: I do try to do a structured kind of rest business that I don't not necessarily trying to work in the weekends or in the evening I try to block it So I work work very intensely between nine and five. I take my break. I always take breaks. I always take my 11 o'clock break. I always take the hour for lunch. I always take a break in the afternoon. So I kind of try to structure in that sense. Try to keep, you know, so not looking at, I, I mean, there's what I say I do and then what I actually do, right? But like the idea is I don't look at email or I don't answer email or I try to manage how long I look at social media or whatever it might be. Try not to look at the phone within the first hour of waking up. You know, it's just that kind of stuff. Then on the, on the data stuff, I've already said, I try to manage, I try to curate what I share. I try to, I use things like privacy enhancement tools. So on my, on my, I use Firefox as my browser. I would have Facebook container. I'd have HTPs everywhere. I'd have privacy badger. You know, I've got a bunch of, I have ad blocker. I have, like, I have a bunch of stuff that's, to manage the data extraction coming off of what I'm doing. I'm using a VPN. So some of my stuff is around time. Some of my stuff is around data. Uh, And the house is pretty analog in the sense of I don't have a smart kettle or coffee maker. I don't have a smart TV. I don't have a smart washing machine. I don't have a... I'm only connecting things up that I think basically it's just the phone and the laptop are really the only digital things that are connected onto the internet. So there's no other data extraction going off off of home appliances. Now, that will become more difficult over time because they just won't sell a mechanical washing machine anymore. It'll be a smart washing machine and you just won't have a choice. So it'll be increasingly difficult to do that. But at the same time, you don't necessarily need to connect the washing machine to the internet for it to work. Or your fridge. Or your fridge. Yeah, yeah, I don't need a smart fridge. I can open the door and see what's in there. I don't need the fridge to tell me, you know.
0: So what are the steps where we can take also towards a more balanced digital society?
1: So it is as a society actually understanding how the economy has produced a particular kind of working style, this kind of neoliberal political economy, which is all about performance and management and extracting value out of workers. And we're all working longer than we're paid for. We're all hyper-connected all the time and so on and maybe just changing that style of how that works you know so moving away from this kind of very metricized view of how of how we try to manage organizations and so on and maybe change thinking about the kinds of workplaces that we want to that we want to live in and so that we want to work in and how they're managed and run and things around like the civil society and things like labor unions and so on and actively as a society trying to shape policies, shape regulation, shape social expectations to shape what we actually expect people to be to be doing. So it's a bit of both, really. But I think part of what we're doing is kind of saying, look, there does seem to be this kind of inevitability that we should be living at this pace and tempo, that we should just accept this kind of surveillance capitalism. And actually kind of saying, well, that's not the case. And there's little things that we can do to intervene. And then there are larger political things that we can do to try and intervene. And it's not an inevitable teleological path to some predestined future you know, the future is there to be shaped and we can try and do interventions to shape that and that we do need to push. If we, if we don't do anything, then we will get the future that others want for us. And so we need to do something, uh, even if it's just lots of us doing small steps, some of us doing larger or as a collective doing larger steps, that, that needs to happen.
0: So people do need to become more aware more educated and come together as a collective it's to do with civil rights basically ultimately at the end of the day well with with this new technological age we're going into our rights are going to become more and more important i firmly believe that
1: yeah so yeah. So there are kind of civil liberty things here i mean and that's going on at the minute in relation to the covid as well you know that we're rushing out this technology without necessarily thinking about some of the downstream effects of rolling you know of kind of legitimating uh, this kind of mass surveillance and so on. So, but there's also the kind of a social thing as well. So, that it's part, you know, so some of this stuff is about, you know, changing regulation and law and so on, but actually, some of it's about us changing our behavior with each other. So, you know, if I say to people, look, I'm not going to do that, this is the reason why, and I think we, you know, so it could be little things like little games, you know, or whatever. So, I, I mean, I go to restaurants occasionally. I mean, obviously, you don't go at all at the minute given the situation, but. Go back six months and they go to a restaurant and half the people at a table would actually be looking at their phone or the kids at the table might be looking at a DVD or, and you kind of think, this is kind of crazy. Like, like this is meant to be a social event of the people at the table and actually nobody's talking to each other. They're all talking to their phone. So you can change the social dynamic there and actually get people to maybe think about what's going on there, you know, simple things. So like uh, the one I like is, um, everybody has to put their phone in the middle of the table in a stack. And whoever picks up their phone first pays the bill for everybody, right? The only reason you can answer the phone is if the babysitter rings. Otherwise, it's a social event and you talk to people at the table. You know, that works at a couple of different levels. It works at the level of hopefully making the evening more kind of enjoyable. You're actually talking to the people there. But it also works at the level of making people reflect on the fact that this thing is interfering in their life in a very particular kind of way that might, that they've just normalized and just accepted as opposed to kind of saying, is that actually how I want to live? Do I want to live tethered to this thing? Or do I want to use it in a more kind of selective, creative way that isn't altering my life in a way that's maybe not as beneficial as I think it is?
0: Thanks a lot for listening to my podcast. If you like, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. If you want more information, you can head over to my website at www.inaom.com. Dot I